You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. On the weekend that the United States celebrates its 245th birthday, we thought it would be good to release a SpyCast on the birthplace of American espionage. Did you think Philly was all cheesesteaks, Rocky running up the steps and baseball? Think again. From the Committee on Spies during the Revolution, now there's a, a committee it actually sounds like it would be fun to be on, to the Pinkertons during the Civil War, up through the Cold War and the Global War on Terror, the city of brotherly love has all kinds of fascinating links to the world of intelligence and espionage. This week's guests are H. Keith Melton, the world's preeminent collector of espionage-related artefacts, and Bob Wallace, former director of the CIA's Office of Technical Services, has been called the real-life cue of the CIA. I sat down with both of them to discuss their latest collaboration, Spy Sites of Philadelphia. This is the third in their trilogy on spy sites. The first was in a city famous for the Washington Nationals baseball team, the second for a city famous for the New York Mets. Happy birthday, America. I'm really excited to speak to both of you about this, especially because it's about Philadelphia, which is one of my favorite cities in the United States. But before we look at the spy sites of Philadelphia, the thought did strike me. How did you gentlemen first meet and how has your partnership lasted so long and been so successful? Because I know a lot of authors and I know a lot of people that have tried to co-author stuff and it doesn't always end well, but you guys are really going strong and this is... Yeah, another quality Melton Wallace production. So just tell us a little bit more about how you first began to collaborate and what is the secret? Keith, do you remember when we first met? Bob, it was in the mid-1990s. I believe it was getting closer to one of the anniversaries of the 50th of OTS. Uh, It may have been before that. I think it was the summer before the 50th anniversary of the CIA in 1997. Keith had generously loaned to the CIA many of his artifacts, many of his Cold War artifacts, for a display that we would have at the CIA headquarters that fall, this would be part of our overall celebration. And I was the acting director of the Office of Technical Service at the time, so we were also contributing uh, some of our artifacts to that exhibit. The piece that I remember most vividly is a bit humorous because there were some items that we had that the CIA did not want to declassify. Keith Melton had some of those same gadgets in his collection because he had gotten them from the Russians. We like to say that if you want to see the best display 
of CIA gadgetry and devices in the world. Uh, in addition to the International Spy Museum, you should go to the KGB Museum in Moscow. So that's the point at which uh, Keith Melton and I became acquainted, and I guess it would be fair to say that we developed a, a very good friendship thereafter. It does seem like a marriage made in heaven because you were in the Office of Technical Services, Bob, and I know that, Keith, you're really fascinated by the technology and this tradecraft of espionage. I would add that Bob is extraordinarily detailed and patient. And so it's been a pleasure to work with him on so many years. When we wrestled through a project, we approach it from complementary positions. Bob is very good at looking at the human element and wanting to make sure that the broad themes and the overarching story is told. I like to look at what millimeter film were they using and what was the exact radio frequency of the covert communication. So between the two, we, we approach it from generally different areas, but we're both very uh, consumed with making sure it's factual and hopefully there are stories well told. Our collaboration on a book didn't begin until 2003. The summer of 2003, I retired from the CIA. And again, I recall very clearly in a conversation that I was having with Keith, he suggested we begin thinking about putting together a book about the development of CIA gadgets, particularly the devices that support espionage operations. And uh, Keith's point was that he had many of the devices, many of the gadgets. Uh, he had the details on the technology. And perhaps uh, through my contacts with people, retired people at the agency, we could develop a number of stories about how these gadgets were developed and how they were used. Uh, so that uh, conversation eventually led to us collaborating with Henry Schlesinger, a New York writer, on spycraft. Uh, Mr. Schlesinger had, in fact, profiled Keith probably uh, two or three years previously, Keith, in an article in the Smithsonian Magazine. He had. We've all three kind of generally been busy on some espionage-related project, I think, since about then. <laughs> in various degrees of focus, but it's been a uh, many interesting stories to tell, and there's been a number of very interesting books that have resulted. And what number of books is this now? We have done five books uh, now together. The Spy Sight series, which is uh, three books, Philadelphia, Washington, and New York. We did Spycraft, which was the original book, and between uh, those two, there's the official CIA manual of trickery and deception. Uh, really quite a, a fascinating uh, little piece we put together in 2009, 2010, and that book has subsequently done uh, quite well on the commercial market. It has been translated into 10 different languages, and so it is literally published around the world. Wow. I suppose our Chinese friends have, have learned quite a lot about uh, CIA tradecraft from the 1953 document that is the core of that book. Also, we've had very interesting two-plus years with the television series Spycraft that debuted earlier this year on Netflix. And I really enjoy that series, and I would encourage our listeners to watch it too. So moving on to the book now, so Philadelphia, we had Washington, D.C., we had New York City, and now we have Philadelphia. So could you just tell us a little bit more about the role that Philadelphia plays in the book? You say that it's the birthplace of American espionage. Can you just walk us through that birth? Keith, I think it would be helpful if you would sort of set the background of how the whole Spy Sight series was developed, because uh, as Andrew mentioned, we had two books before we did Philadelphia. So kind of the, the backdrop of those other two books, I think it helps us inform Philadelphia. Bob and I 
in building an first an archive of stories and an archive of which has resulted now to be thousands of espionage related images, we also began collecting details of sites. It was interesting to notice where someone was born, where they were died, but also where they did a dread drop, where they had a safe house, where there was an assassination. And as the archive began to grow, we pondered once, would it be practical to do a guide to a city, but just focusing on places that espionage took place? And from that, we looked in where in the U.S. could you really support? Was there enough espionage that you could support a book? Well, as we looked at the country, essentially three, three cities jump out. Of course, Washington, D.C., but also New York City and Philadelphia. Because those three cities had the preponderance of espionage that would cover going back to the American Revolution and certainly up to the current day. And we began with Washington, and a couple of years later, did New York City. But we needed to end with Philadelphia. And the three cities were, in many ways, operations in one, also were conducted with the other. But the books were designed to not just be a site that says on this corner XYZ took place, but to say, here's what happened, here's how it was conducted, here's what it means. So cumulatively, they probably give readers a very good insight into tradecraft and clandestine operations. But Philadelphia turned out to be very special. Yes, Philadelphia fascinated me uh, when we started to get into it. I had not really uh, appreciated the role that Philadelphia played in the development of the American intelligence capability, absent the research we started to do with this book. I like to say that Philadelphia, before the founding fathers were esteemed founding fathers, they were spies. It was a gang of spies that created the Declaration of Independence. A year before the Declaration of Independence uh, was drafted and signed, the Continental Congress in 1775 authorized the commander-in-chief of the Army, the just-appointed commander-in-chief of the Army, George Washington, a secret fund to conduct intelligence operations. That was done in June of 1775, and less than a month later, uh, George Washington made his first draw on that account, an amount of about $333 that he gave to an unidentified person. Still, we don't know who that was, but an unidentified individual to organize the America's first spy ring in the Boston area, in the New England area. So that was the beginning of the American espionage enterprise. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the Committee on Spies. Could you tell listeners a little bit more about that committee? The uh, Committee on Spies, I suppose if one wanted to draw a current analogy with it, it would be the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. If the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence had the role of creating and implementing the spy organization, not simply overseeing the operations of U.S. intelligence. So this committee was made up of names that the people know, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, these founders of, of America were also part of the Committee of the Spies. Now, the Committee of the Spies also recognized almost immediately that there were two elements to spying. One was the acquisition of information, and the other was the protection of their own information, protection from British spies. The British, let's not ignore the fact that the British intelligence apparatus was also in full swing uh, across the colonies at the time. The British were as interested in what was going on in the forming revolution as the revolutionaries were in getting rid of the British. So we had a spy versus spy 
situation in America in 1775. So the uh, committee that you refer to had both obligations, and much of this was what I would call distributed kind of spying. The various colonies had their own separate organizations that were more or less coordinated by this committee. In terms of the counterintelligence function, uh, the man uh, appointed to head that counterintelligence in New York was John Jay, the man who later became Justice, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. With respect to uh, New York, the importance of Jay's appointment there is that New York was occupied by the British. That was where the British command for their military in the colonies was located in New York. So quite reasonably, the British were running a number of spy operations against the Patriots out of New York. That's kind of the broad brush on the role and function of the committee. Keith, do you have something to add there? We dismiss our forefathers as unsophisticated and really not aware and as not up to date as we are today. I would ponder or posit that, as Bob and I have discussed, all the fundamental goals of intelligence and counterintelligence that are in place today, the basic principles were very well recognized at the time. The only thing that's really changed is the methodology by which we accomplish those goals. And as Bob and I once tried to define good tradecraft, and tradecraft being systematized techniques and practices of clandestine behavior, we decided that good tradecraft is never constant. It's always being updated by new and available technology. And sometimes it's being backdated because a technology is so old it becomes useful again and it's been off the shelf so long you can begin to use it. So they were very aware. They used the best available tools at the time. And George Washington very successfully used intelligence as a form of asymmetrical warfare and took advantage of the fact that the majority of the people in the country supported the revolution, and he used it to the disadvantage of the British. Andrew, as you mentioned, a lot of interest on the part of both Keith and I in the technology of the time. And I think I want Keith to comment on this, but I would make one immediate note that John Jay also had a brother, a uh, brother who lived in uh, Britain at the time was a physician, and he had access, because of his physician uh, status, uh, to all, all types of chemistry and chemicals and uh, various things available. And uh, John Jay's brother supplied John Jay and ultimately the Patriots with some of the special inks that could be used for secret writing. Keith, maybe you would like to speak just a little bit more about the various technologies that uh, were available during the Revolutionary War? Certainly. Much of what was used at the time has been popularized in the television series Turner. And it's a very interesting series. It certainly gets some of the points right. At times, it's highlighting technologies that wouldn't even come around for another 10, 20 years or even longer. And some things are fanciful. But the core of espionage is communication. It's one thing to have the capability or either have someone that knows secrets or can steal secrets, but they're no good if you can't convey that information to the service of the person or the part of the military that can in turn use them. And so it's that tenuous link between an agent and a service that was essentially the focus of the CIA's Office of Technical Service, was originally to provide technology aids and transferring that information. But during the revolution, they felt the same thing. They, so they first had to say, well, how do we protect the information? And the height of COVCOM, covert communication of the day, was secret writing. And they called it sympathetic stains. And at the time, they developed techniques that would be well used throughout the Cold War and perhaps even to the current day of taking a letter, turning it at a right angle, and either writing a message in a sympathetic stain 
that would not appear unless you either subjected it to heat or you applied a liquid reagent that would make the original message appear. And this proved to be very effective. Some of the individual stains that they were referred to by General Washington that he used have still never been identified. So it's very, very interesting. They lack the sophistication that came with greater technology at a later point, but the ability to know your ink and know the reagent and use it was core to being a spy at the time. And also, conversely, being caught with secret inks was prima facie evidence of espionage. So there's the flip side of it. But the fundamental tenets of understanding the protection of information General Washington wrote a famous letter. It said, you know, for the lack of secrecy, all else may be lost. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing him. But the document was in many ways one of the founding documents of the CIA because it recognized that you need to have secrets and you need to protect secrets if we will have an effective democracy. Because all of our democracy, and especially during the revolution, depended on could the leaders communicate secretly in order to plan for a future country or enact the war. Part of the secrecy of the Revolutionary War also involved cryptology. We tend to think perhaps of cryptology as being a more modern science, but in fact, Thomas Jefferson uh, is known for having uh, created a wheel, a wooden wheel, which could uh, be used for encrypting messages. Perhaps a more significant person than Jefferson uh, was a man named James Lovell, who uh, was kind of the advocate for the use of cryptology among the patriots. And uh, he also created a cipher machine that was that was used during uh, substituting numbers for letters during the Revolutionary War. He also was effective uh, as, as a cryptologist himself, and uh, he was successful in uh, personally uh, decrypting messages from uh, British generals, uh, between British generals that had been intercepted uh, by the patriots. And this information is generally uh, thought to be of a special importance to George Washington at the final battle of Yorktown in 1781. We'll be right back after this. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice, then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. And one of the questions that I was thinking about when both of you were speaking there was, we spoke about the Committee on Spies, we spoke about George Washington as America's first spy master. We spoke about Philadelphia as the birthplace of American espionage. But I was wondering, where did that skill set come from? Did they have to start from scratch? Was it from books? Was it stuff that they borrowed from the British? Help us understand a little bit more about how they, they developed this skill set at the birth of the country. I'll make a comment on that and then kick it back to Keith. There is uh, evidence that uh, George Washington was a learner of mistakes or by mistakes. And uh, George Washington's activity, uh, military activity during the uh, French and Indian War was not nearly as successful as his leadership during the Revolutionary War. So George Washington picked up a a number or is is believed to have learned a number of experiential lessons 
from his French and Indian War experience that he applied then, especially in the area of secrecy and uh, running agents to his Revolutionary War apparatus. Benjamin Franklin, who was a real rascal in terms of just personality, um, must have been a delightful man to have known, was a publisher throughout his adult life, and and he was an old man. Put that in quotes since I'm of his generation now myself. Was an old man, uh, 70 years old at the uh, time of the revolution. But he had a keen awareness, a keen sense of the power of the press. And he was quite deliberate and quite active in doing all kinds of influence uh, operations through the press, through the printing press, which was the primary means of, of communication at the time. He was not at all above creating and publishing false stories. Uh, if there was a father of fake news, it might have been Benjamin Franklin. Keith, maybe you could add an item or two. I would observe that the fledgling revolution learn the necessity to be able to hold meetings without being detected by the loyalists. They were able to evade the early version of the police, the British counterintelligence, and those lessons that they learned to survive going into 1776 would ultimately serve them well, because even when they took power, the necessity to maintain secrecy of communication was key, especially in the fledgling colonies. You had to have the Committee of Secret Correspondence, because if you couldn't communicate secretly, you couldn't run a government, and you certainly couldn't fund clandestine activities or military. But with our military disadvantage, and with the overpowering might of the most powerful navy in the world, the colonies were a great disadvantage. Intelligence and espionage proved to be one of the areas that was asymmetrical. We used that very effectively. And General Gage, one of the British generals, later communicating after the war, made the broad observation that they, the colonials, outspied us. And it was used very well. And it's if we look back at one of the great spy masters in our history, one might nominate General Washington is perhaps one of the first because his ability to task and use information directly, it was somewhat without parallel for a person of his stature and position. There were two really ugly incidents for the patriots that also formed their attitude towards spying, but also encouraged them to be very careful in their spying. The one was the capture and execution of the first and probably the most famous of the Revolutionary War spies, Nathan Hale, someone who uh, was ill-trained to be a spy. The British uh, quickly captured him after he had attempted to infiltrate and executed him. This led to Uh, In part, a friend of his uh, by the name of Benjamin Talmadge creating and running the Culper Ring out of New York, which arguably was became one of the most successful of the Patriot spy rings. Talmadge's recollection or that memory of his and his college classmate uh, being executed, I, I'm sure, gave uh, Mr. Talmadge uh, many sleepless nights in terms of thinking about how he would uh, protect the security of the Culper Ring. But the second kind of slap across the face was Dr. Benjamin Church. And Dr. Benjamin Church was right at the center of this core of founding fathers. He went to Philadelphia to the Continental Congress and was such a respected man that he was named the director general and chief physician of Washington's army. What none of the founding fathers understood at the time was that he was a spy for the British, and he was reporting to the uh, British generals back in New England uh, what was going on at the Continental Congress and uh, all of these sorts of things. He probably would not have been captured or detected had it not been for a tradecraft error in which one of his letters, who for reasons that are just 
completely not understood by me. He used his mistress as a courier for one of his letters. And uh, this letter eventually fell into Patriot hands and uh, Benjamin Church was identified as a British spy. A fascinating point on it is, though, Washington couldn't do anything about it, really, as in uh, he couldn't hang him because the Continental Congress hadn't passed any authorization uh, for execution of spies. They did that quickly, uh, but Benjamin Church was spared until he decided to sail for Central America and sometime in during his uh, sailing to Central America, his ship went down in the West Indies and uh, he, he was lost. So we never had the final memoir of Dr. Benjamin Church, which had been fascinating had we had it. Just to concretize the book and Benjamin Church a little bit more, could you just Tell us about the spy site of Philadelphia that's connected to him. The spy site of uh, Dr. Church is Independence Hall and the uh, and Carpenter's Hall, uh, both of which were meeting locations for the Continental Congress. I think for some listeners, when they think about Philadelphia and espionage, for the Continental Congress, it will seem more you know, obvious, the, the connection. But the story doesn't stop there, does it? Because in the book... You've got a chapter where you're looking at the 19th century, and we'll come on to World War One and World War Two. but give us a couple of your favorite spy sites of Philadelphia that would root us in the 19th century. One that I thought was very interesting, as perhaps America continued to do, after we would have a war, we would traditionally disband not only much of our military, but much of our intelligence and counterintelligence capability. So after each great war, we'd go into a lull, and then we'd have to suddenly try to be prepared for the next war. So going into the American Civil War, we had no organized intelligence or counterintelligence capability. But one man stood clearly out at the very beginning, and that would have been a man named Alan Pinkerton began a private detective service in the 1850s, and his uh, branch office was on South 3rd Street in Philadelphia. And by the way, a site that is still there, he would employ one of his detectives named Kate Warren, who would be remembered by him as perhaps one of the five greatest detectives that ever lived. So Pinkerton would be pressed into service Bob can go into more depth, but all manners of things, including protecting President-elect Lincoln as he transited through Philadelphia more than once on his way to Washington. And Pinkerton, uh, the company is still in business today, but Pinkerton would become one of the major sources of intelligence for the Union Army. There were other competing sources within military intelligence but it's certainly linked with Philadelphia and it has a rich history. Bob and I were always fascinated and I think he'll talk about the link with President Lincoln. I was really hoping that you were going to mention Pinkerton because he was born in the same city as me, Glasgow, before oh. before he came to the States. So, yeah, sorry. Over to you, Bob. <laughs> well, the uh, Pinkerton detective agency, which was really formed to protect the railroads in the 1850s, became uh, well known for its effectiveness and its uh, its good detective work. And so this is one of those cases where uh, essentially a, a group of civilians citizens, if you will, citizen spies were brought into the United States government to protect the president. There were credible threats that Abraham Lincoln's life was threatened during the time that he was traveling by train from Springfield to Washington for his inauguration. And the center of that conspiracy seemed to be in Baltimore. Lincoln, after he left New York, the train route was to Philadelphia, with uh, then a stop over in Harrisburg. Lincoln wanted to make a speech uh, in Harrisburg. That was the state capital, and that uh, he wanted to recognize the admission of Kansas to the Union as a free state, which had occurred the month, one month before. So there was quite a an elaborate 
operation developed to uh, move uh, Lincoln uh, both clandestinely and at times in disguise from Philadelphia to Harrisburg and then back to Philadelphia and onward to to Baltimore, where he would then uh, go down to New York. So one of the detectives, Kate Warren, was assigned in part because uh, she was a a female and uh, she had the ability to uh, move among people that just uh, regular old dirty guys, detective guys probably couldn't, and uh, hear things and and know things. And uh, she said that on that uh, train trip from from Philadelphia to Baltimore, she never slept a wink, and uh, that is reported to have given rise to the Pinkerton Detective Agency slogan, We Never Sleep. I wanted to mention, Andrew, in terms of technology is really significant in the Civil War, and Philadelphia plays a role in that. The principal technologies of the Civil, the new technologies that related to espionage and the Civil War were photography, the telegraph, and balloons, aerial surveillance. And um, the man who really developed the aerial surveillance capability, the balloon capability, Capability was Thaddeus Lowe. Thaddeus Lowe was from uh, Chester County uh, in uh, in Philadelphia, and some of his early experiments in the late uh, 1850s and, and uh, 1860 uh, were done in Philadelphia and in that area. Eventually, in uh, 61, he came to Washington, where uh, in June of, of 1961, he really flew the, the first maiden flight of a surveillance balloon uh, launching it over uh, in the area of the Smithsonian, where the Smithsonian now is, and observing the Confederate forces outside of Washington. Thaddeus Lowe, he can, we note him as being one of the prominent contributors to espionage from Philadelphia. One of the things that I was thinking as well, was Philadelphia connected into the campaign when Lee came into Pennsylvania? Philadelphia was rumored to be a target of Lee, but uh, this rumor had almost had no real credibility. It was investigated, uh, looked at by Union soldiers, Union generals, and uh, it it was dismissed. In fact, the Lee campaign in Pennsylvania, uh, Gettysburg, the idea was not to continue east toward Philadelphia, but to swing south uh, to Washington to attack Washington from the north. So, uh, no, Philadelphia, neither Philadelphia nor New York were threatened during these during the civil war how do you do the research for these books so the various locations do you get out and walk the sites or is it kind of a combination or is it mainly work that you do in a library or give us an understanding of how it all comes together i'm going to ask keith to tell the story of how we uh, went out and found the site of lassie Sometimes providence and research combine together to come up with some serendipitous moments. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of the chicken and the egg. Do you find a famous case and then look for a site, or do you stumble upon sites that lead you to cases? And I would say the answer is, is both. We were always drawn to sites where we could find a specific location. We wanted to know an address, and of course, addresses change over the centuries, and street address is often very different. But we looked for specific locations where we could tie events. That was critical. The second thing, if they had buildings that were still existing, that even made it more interesting and brought in some other challenges in transitional neighborhoods. If you want to get out with being 70 years old and walking around with a camera in some neighborhoods taking pictures of buildings was not often seen as a welcoming act by the individuals who may have lived there. So we developed some very, very interesting techniques such as take those kind of pictures or ask Hank, our researcher, to take those pictures probably about 6 a.m. in the morning, thinking that Perhaps anyone that would be most vociferous in their objection probably was (laughs) still asleep from the night before. 
So uh, we had some very interesting stories with some very interesting sights that we have snaps of, but we did so very hurriedly. We didn't linger around and try to explain what we were doing. And in one of those, uh, we ended up kind of crossing over into the world of Hollywood and discovering the burial site of Lassie. And I'll let Bob explain this tenuous connection to the world of espionage. Well, Lassie, uh, perhaps uh, many of our listeners know, is a classic book, Lassie, Come Home. And it was written in 1940 by Eric Knight. Eric Knight lived about 40 miles north of Philadelphia in a place called Springhouse. It's on Springhouse Lane in Quakerstown, Pennsylvania. Eric Knight was an Englishman, a, a Yorkshireman. Andrew, are you a Yorkshireman? No, <laughs> a lot about further north. <laughs> okay. Well, he was a Yorkshireman, and uh, he never forgot that he was. He was always very proud of that. Came to the United States and became a successful writer, but had no success uh, like that of the book Lassie. Well, Eric Knight then was uh, in the Second World War. He had served in the, with the British in the in the First World War. In the Second World War, he became part of the American intelligence activities in the Second World War, and uh, he died in a plane crash in 1943, military transport that was on its way to establish some radio stations, uh, war-related operations in Cairo. So he was killed in that plane crash. So this, we thought, was a, a particularly fascinating connection to intelligence. Lassie as a spy is not actually the name of the book, but I think one could write a pretty good story along that line. That's Eric Knight, one of those just remarkable finds that unexpected uh, gems that one finds doing this research. That reminds me of that saying, if we knew what we were doing, it wouldn't be called research. <laughs> I like that. Walk us up to the 20th century because I think that the two chapters that use the two sections that you have on World War One and World War Two to me are are some of the most fascinating ones in the book. Um, could you just pull out that era for us a little bit more and maybe discuss a couple of the sites that you were uh, particularly drawn to or that surprised you or that are your favourites? There are a couple of points on World War II, World War I and World War II that I think are related on, on Philadelphia. First point is that uh, Philadelphia had a very large German immigrant population. Germany being the adversary, the enemy in both World War I and World War II, Germany saw Philadelphia as a location where potentially they could place, they could recruit, uh, they could handle, they could run by burying them in that uh, German uh, community. The German community uh, would have people that were naturally sympathetic uh, to the uh, to the homeland, and the German intelligence sought to exploit that. The second piece that I think is fascinating about Philadelphia is at the time, Philadelphia would have been a key center for technology, for industry, for shipbuilding, for munitions building in the United States. So Philadelphia was also a target for the Germans in terms of both sabotage as well as collecting information from the facilities, from the capabilities that were in Philadelphia. Philadelphia had a link, an interesting link, and Keith will talk about this, I hope, to the uh, American atomic bomb and arguably some of the most uh, significant individuals in the Soviet to uh, discover how the atomic bomb was made, the technology behind that, some of their most uh, important assets had a strong Philadelphia linkage. Keith? Sadly, but one of the great espionage operations of the war was what the Soviet government did to us. At times, we believe we know much about their operations, but then there's times that it surprises us. In 2000, 
six, a book came out in Russia and referenced one of their great unknown spies, an individual, an officer by the name of Delmar. And it was only when President Putin subsequently in 2007 gives an award that the historian ties it that the nameless person that he now had revealed, whose name was George Kobal, who was living in Philadelphia during the war, was a scientist at a little-known scientific research site called the Thermal Diffusion Pilot Plant, which was buried and secreted inside Building 638 of the Philadelphia Navy Yard. And he successfully provided information from that. It was provided to a contact in New York City, and it was subsequently that he was considered to be one of the most important assets that the Soviet Union had. He subsequently went to New York and actually headed a secret station there for the Russians. Uh, at the end of the war, he graduated from CCNY, and then about 1946 disappears, returned back to the Soviet Union, and goes into a, to history until suddenly his memory and his name are provided in 2006, 2007. So a fascinating tidbit to come up is probably little known or certainly little remembered by even vintage Philadelphians at this point. One of the stories that uh, we recount in the book is about Brooke Dolan. Brooke Dolan was an OSS officer, his residence. So we were we were able to photograph the uh, Brooke Dolan home. And uh, Brooke Dolan has an important role because in the uh, early 1940s, he took a message from President Roosevelt to the Dalai Lama in Tibet. And this was an effort to solidify a relationship uh, between the OSS and the uh, Dalai Lama. Now, at the time, the Dalai Lama was just a, it was just a child. But the mission was considered a success. Unfortunately, Brooke Dolan did not outlive the war, but he had delivered to the Dalai Lama a pocket watch from the president. And just uh, within the, in the past 10 years, the Dalai Lama visited Washington again. In his possession was that watch, that pocket watch that he had been given by the OSS officer, Brooke Dolan. And he again expressed his appreciation for the United States and for the support that it over the years has, has given him and his people. Talking about the OSS there, moving on to another OSS figure whose story in the book I found really interesting, Richard Helms, the former director of Central Intelligence. He's got a connection to the spy sites of Philadelphia. Can you sketch out that for us a little bit? Richard Helms was born in one of the suburbs of Philadelphia, and he became a journalist, perhaps. Keith, uh, do I have this right? I believe Richard Helms, he interviewed uh, Hitler, or he was at an interview with Hitler. I'm uh, sorry that when this just is coming to my mind immediately, I'm not clear on the detail. But Richard Helms was a successful uh, journalist, and then, like many of his contemporaries uh, who had special skills, uh, he joined the OSS. And after uh, the OSS was disbanded at the end of the war, the CIA was created. Richard Helms was one of those few. There weren't there were not a lot, but there were uh, several OSS veterans who then joined the CIA and made it a career. Richard Helms eventually became the director of operations at CIA, then served for seven years as the director of the agency from 1966 until 1973. Richard Helms is a revered figure among uh, agency professionals, I believe, because of the skill that he uh, handled a number of operations and a number of assignments during his career. Uh, Keith, do you have any uh, specific stories on Mr. Helms that you'd like to share? I knew him personally. He wrote the introduction to one of my early books. He was patrician, highly thought of, very intelligent, but a very gracious and polite director that was 
well-liked by those that worked for him. He often stood on principle, I think. I remember that uh, where there had been some discussion, should the CIA be involved with assassinations? And he said, that's, that's not what we do. He did not want to further the CIA activity in that area. And he did not believe that the CIA should play a role in assassinating foreign leaders. So he stood on principle and is was a good friend, and he's still revered and well-remembered. Kijapillo, another spy site that is connected to the Cold War that's particularly interesting. I want to give you some free reign to choose what you want, but I also found it quite interesting that Richard Ames was also born there, not to be confused and not related to Aldrich Ames, but I'll leave it up to you. The Cold War and spy sites of Philadelphia... I'll make an observation that uh, one of my favorite and one that we have some nice displays on in the museum would be the Glomar Explorer. The uh, Howard Hughes ship was built at the uh, the naval, well, at a shipyard there. It it was actually Sun Building and Dry Dock Company, and that's where the Howard Hughes vessel was originally constructed. I believe it was later outfitted down in Virginia in Norfolk, but it ultimately, in its project Azorian, was at least partially successful, I believe, in recovering part of a sunken Russian submarine in 16,500 feet of ocean, one that I know uh, we have some very interesting displays in the museum, and believe a, a complete set of plans for the ship. So we have a it's a fascinating story, and very few people remember that its origin was in Philadelphia. Another major program in Philadelphia supported the first American satellite, the Corona satellite uh, systems. Those, uh, again, interestingly, the a uh, hundred years before the Corona, Philadelphia had been instrumental through uh, Thaddeus Lowe in the aerial surveillance from the balloon, and now a hundred years later. Philadelphia is playing a critical part in the surveillance from satellites. So I think that technological element of Philadelphia perhaps is is not well recognized. Walk us up to the present era, because the story doesn't stop with the Cold War, does it? Bob, I would offer, I think, one of the more contemporaneous stories is a story of a man by the name of David Coleman Headley. And though in this country, we don't often remember the importance of the terrorist attack in Mumbai, which took place in November of 2008. But in for counterintelligence and counterterrorism officials, it was one of the most successful attacks where a group of 10 jihadists from Pakistan use cell phones and small arms as weapons of mass disruption. And it was one of the most well-coordinated and well-planned attacks in which the 10 people essentially held a city of millions hostage and drew world attention for almost 72 hours as the 10 individuals effectively paralyzed the entire community. And it all goes back to a site at 56 South 2nd Street in Philadelphia known as the Tiber Pass Pub. And uh, David, whose mother, Sarah Headley, the former wife of a Pakistani diplomat, but herself a, a bit of a wayward girl from the Philadelphia Blue Line, their son was David. She passionately, was after the divorce, finally got him out of Pakistan. He came back from a Pakistani military academy and suddenly finds himself managing his mother's pub and drinking establishment. He quickly decided some of the rich, the, the very rigid Islamic fundamentalist training he'd received was not anything to compare with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And he took over as the manager of the pub, and it would ultimately lead him into a life of procuring drugs in Pakistan, trying to smuggle them back. Each time he did, he was very unsuccessful as a smuggler. He'd be caught. And he'd turn state's evidence, have a prison term. And this continued until 2003. He had betrayed everyone, essentially, that he had tried to buy drugs from. And the only way he could 
avoid being killed was he became a radical jihadist. And from that was spotted because he didn't look as a typical terrorist was imagined to look. He looked, quote, unquote, Western. He had one blue eye, had one brown eye, wore his hair in a ponytail. He was a bodybuilder, spoke flawless English, and he was a jihadist spy. And he did the reconnaissance work into Mumbai. And it was sadly one of the most of their successful events. In 2008, he watched it all happen from his home in Chicago. Ultimately, he wanted to follow it up with attack to kill Kurt Vestergaard, the Danish cartoonist who had drawn the cartoon of the, the prophet wearing a turban, a headband shaped as a bomb. And his plan was codenamed Mickey Mouse. And he wanted to go storm the publisher, capture the publisher and Kurt Vestergaard, draw them all up to the top roof of the building, draw the world's press to photograph, and then he wanted to behead them and throw their heads at the reporters. Fortunately, he was arrested in Chicago in August of 2009 as he was en route to fly to Philadelphia to say goodbye to his mother before he headed to Pakistan. And ultimately, true to form, he would immediately flip on everyone that he had worked for in the jihadist movement and would betray the entire operation. So the Khyber Pass pub is the key to where it all began. And incidentally, a place that I actually had a dinner at one time a number of years ago without realizing its uh, colorful history. This is a question that I've been trying to save for the getting towards the end uh, because it's one I'm excited to know the answer to. What spy site of Philadelphia was each of your individual favorites? Which one really connected with you or what's one that you would like to tell the listeners about? Well, I thought one of uh, my favorite spy sites was not in Philadelphia. It was outside of Philadelphia. It goes back to the Revolutionary War. And that site was the home of a woman who was an artist, was a sculptor. And uh, she uh, was one of these uh, widow ladies in the before the Revolutionary War who lost her husband. She had uh, four or five kids at home, and uh, she uh, needed to entertain them. And so she began to make wax sculptures. This is the story of Patricia Wright, who became then a very well-known wax sculptor, went to England, and with uh, introductory letters from uh, several prominent Philadelphians, uh, she began to get get work with the elite of London, including uh, some of the high government officials in London. What she heard while these, uh, these subjects were sitting for her wax sculpting profiles was a lot of gossip and a lot of information about what the British were thinking about the war and attitudes toward the war and plans and that sort of thing. She would write this down and then secrete these messages inside the heads of the wax images that were being sent back to uh, the United States. You know, if you were a general in the British Army, why, instead of having a portrait of the president in your office, well, you had a wax sculptor of the head of, of whatever, you know, the Prince of Wales or, or whomever. So this, so this was a way to smuggle the uh, information back to the United States. The people who were receiving the uh, images understood that there might be messages in them. And before they do, delivered them to their intended recipients, uh, these messages were taken out. So her home, which was built in 1700, is still standing. And uh, that's uh, just outside of Philadelphia. It's actually on the New Jersey side in Bordertown, New Jersey. Fascinating site, fascinating story of a woman whose story I don't think is otherwise very well known. And did you have a favorite, Keith? I do. And I believe we forget that Bob and I were often talked about how amazed we were to look at the preponderance and success of German espionage during First World War and the very active campaigns that existed in the First World War and the Second World War to sway American opinion against 
quote, entering Europe's war and getting involved again in combating Germany. But it also highlighted a failure in the United States in that we lack the sufficient laws to prosecute spies as a national crime because each jurisdiction, in effect, had their own local laws that was spying as a crime, but it was not a national federal crime. And in this vacuum, there was a need to protect the country against American spies, uh, against foreign spies. Bob and I at one counted some 110 significant acts of sabotage that took place roughly in that 1914 to 1918 period in the East Coast. And one could see why there was a need. A group of citizen spies called the American Protective League were founded. It operated uh, at what was the, the site of now the, the Bellevue Stratford Hotel, and it ultimately numbered thousands of individuals who were authorized to carry weapons. They had their own local command structure, and they effectively reported into the Department of Justice, but their mission was to go out, and if your neighbor said something on another neighbor, well, you just, you volunteered, join your local unit, got some rank, and you carried an ID car and a badge, and you went and investigated treason and spies. It was far more well-intended than it was practical and functional. We have a very interesting display on it in the museum, some of the original ID cards and badges. But it, from that was, of course, the reason that we needed a national police force. And from that, the Bureau of Information ultimately became the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And that was the answer to the problem that they, at least at one point, proposed a solution to. If people listen to this spycast and they're based in Boston or Miami or Houston, can they look forward to the possibility of a spy site coming to their city or are you just kind of closing the book on the spy sites now? I'm laughing because, uh, to quote Keith, that would be easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Bob, we could get it done in two or three months at the most. Yeah, yes. Uh, you know, maybe uh, Andrew would like to sign up to be one of our researchers. There, Sure, yeah, our spy sites in every American city. That is, we go back through the history of the United States, why that would be the case. The primary ones are, however, going to be in, in cities that have uh, major consulates, uh, particularly since World War II, the uh, spy, spy sites would be in cities like uh, Houston, uh, uh, Dallas, Chicago, Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco. In the uh, Revolutionary War, of course, they're going to be all concentrated on the uh, eastern part, part of the United States. There probably are not any cities that are as rich in available spy sites to us as uh, as what we have done in these three cities. Now, I think you could do a whole series of spy sites, uh, Chinese spy sites in America in the last 20 years, but rightly, uh, a lot of that information or most of that information still remains classified. Keith? I think you get it on the head. Seldom is there any other city that alone could justify it without opening up the FBI's voluminous files, which probably could say that, yes, enough has happened in Los Angeles area to do it. But it's not in the public record. And because of so many ongoing investigations and sources, it's unlikely that there will be enough to justify one in a single city. I think that's to the final point on that. It's a significant observation because arguably Philadelphia was the most difficult of the three cities that we did because none of us had ever been a resident there and we did not know the cities. When we did New York, uh, Hank Schlesinger has been a lifetime resident of New York, so that was helpful. Washington, both Keith and I know Washington uh, very well, but none of the three of us knew Philadelphia. So it was a 
a different type of research and collection effort that we had to do there as contrasted to the other two cities. I think the final question would be, if it's not another spy sites, but what's next on the cards for you? So I really enjoyed your Netflix series, and I'm just wondering what's coming down the pipeline next? Or Well, Keith is the uh, principal organizer of these things. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, he starts out by saying, oh, this will be easy. I say, okay, and then it's too late. <laughs> Andrew, we are looking for targets of opportunity. We have some strong expectation that there'll be a, a second series of Spy Craft with Netflix. And we're very excited about that and looking at uh, interesting sites to further a the global audience of Netflix. Espionage is core to the operation of every major government in the world. Every government in the world of any size has an intelligence service. So it's certainly not going away. The stakes get bigger every year as the cost of research and development. Sadly, it's cheaper to steal your research than it is to do it yourself. And uh, the Chinese have certainly uh, shown us how effective it can be done. So uh, we look forward to looking for to see what's ahead and hopefully listening to the podcast will come visit us at the Spy Museum and see all the amazing sites that are there uh, in our wonderful new building. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.